Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Coming up today, we'll look at what the future might hold for Chelsea after Roman Abramovich was sanctioned whilst he was trying to sell the club. We'll also discuss Mo Salah's contract at Liverpool. And as Everton's struggles continue, we'll discuss the current state of the club and the challenges for the new director of football, Kevin Thelwell. So I went for Chelsea against Newcastle yesterday, came against a backdrop of continued uncertainty. The first game at Stamford Bridge since Roman Abramovich was sanctioned, meaning his assets had been frozen and making any potential sale more complicated. To get a roundup of where things stand at the time of recording on Monday, I'm joined by The Athletic's Matt Slater and one of our Chelsea writers, Simon Johnson. Let's start with the impossible question, shall we, Simon, which is what next... For Chelsea, that can't be answered, can it? No, and, and Petr Cech sort of almost gave that impression in, in his pre-match interview ahead of the Newcastle game, Mark. Um, it, it's all about stumbling through until a new, new owner is found. Of course, they're talking to the government about sort of relaxing the the uh, the lease agreement and sort of giving them sort of a bit more money to come in so they can operate. But all the impression you get from inside the club is that they don't really know, certainly on the on the playing side, the coaching side, they don't really know what's going on. So they're just trying to focus on the football as best they can. I haven't met or heard anybody who um, doesn't think that Thomas Tuchel has, has handled this incredibly well. One of the things he spoke about yesterday was, look, don't worry about me and the players. You know, we're, we're in a very privileged position. Worry about everybody else who works at this club and what what they are going through and yet again it's important if you know to, to preface nothing compared to what people in ukraine are going through so we always have to fit, have to say that so that people do get where we're, we're coming from but we're a football podcast as well so for the people who work at chelsea who are in ticket offices a club shop being a prime example ticket offices club shops catering whatever it may be muddling through day by day is a lot harder for them than it is for the Chelsea first team squad. For sure, Mark. And and, and people have already lost their jobs and, and been told that uh, no matter what happens, even a new owner, that that they're not coming back. My thoughts are with them more than the, the first team players and, and Thomas Tuchel, you know, in the nicest possible way, because these people have got bills to pay, mortgages to pay, and they're, they're now sort of suddenly this income that they were only a few days ago was were, were assuming was coming into their bank accounts. Now they're sort of having to worry about their their futures um, and, and sort of trying to make ends meet. Um, it is a very worrying time for a lot of people at that club who, who, are, who are names that no one ever hears about because they're the people behind the scenes that, that make running running Chelsea and do all the sort of little jobs that, that, that don't get all the glory and don't get all the praise. I should quickly hasten to add, Emma Hayes also deserves 
Yes. A lot, a lot of credit for the way she's been operating with the women's team. And of course, the women players have been responding brilliantly on the pitch too. So that Chelsea fans at least um, have been getting a break from all this drama with um, some getting some good news with the way the players are performing on the pitch still for them. Maybe Matt, I don't know, you, you may know this more than, than Simon. Are, are there executives at the club who are appealing against some of these sanctions to try and protect some of the members of staff that Simon's been talking about? Yeah, there are. I mean, that's exactly what Bruce Buck and Marina Graviscar are doing right now. They're speaking to government a lot. I mean, I, I, the briefing that, that went out that was picked up by some of the papers, you, we all read it, doom and gloom scenario. And that is the, basically applied pressure on the government. And at the same time, they were telling journalists, oh, you know, this is this is awful. And in terms of that general licence, we, we can't function for very long. They were explaining that in more measured terms to government. And I think government listened. And, and to be fair to government, right from the beginning, when we got that sort of kind of bombshell announcement, the sanctions, the frozen asset, they were saying right at the beginning that there was some flexibility in those rules. That general license was very much a, this is new, right? We are not used to freezing an asset like a Premier League football club before. Here's what we've cobbled together. You know, and I sort of mean that in a kind of nicest way. We are faced with this impossible balance between trying to sanction someone and this sanction to be meaningful, to hurt, but at the same time not to kill this cultural asset that people care about that employs thousand people. Tough balance to make. And I think we're probably going to get a few more tweaks to that license, to be honest. But what strikes me, and I, and I just want to pick up on what on what Simon and you were saying, just about how we keep seeing this. I'm seeing it at Chelsea at the moment as almost being like in a form of administration. And what tends to happen in these moments is the manager is the only person who speaks. And it's almost like this sort of part of the job spec that I don't think managers sign up to. Oh, by the way, if it all goes horribly wrong, you know you're going to be the spokesperson and you're going to be handling questions on human rights, people losing their jobs, uh, stuff that's way beyond your, your, you know, your, your experience because the chief exec and the chair and the directors aren't. And I think that's just something that just keeps coming up and it just can't be right. <laughs> it, just really, it really annoys me in these situations. Yeah, because actually even when somebody else did speak yesterday, it was Petr Cech, a former a, a former footballer who is the director who's the director of football is it mm-hmm. that official title Simon at, at Chelsea? Te- so again, technical director, yeah, technical director. So so again, it was it was from the footballing side that came out to talk. Yeah, I mean the the argument would be is that he, he's obviously very close to um, director Marina Granovskaya and was actually pictured sitting next to her during the game. So. There's that link between football and the boardroom. I thought Petter, under the circumstances, handled it pretty well, uh, as as he's always done with football interviews. And perhaps that's why he was put mm. out there, because he's used to talking to the, to the media. I mean, Marina Granovskaya has not given one interview during the time she's, she's had her role. Uh, Bruce Buck has been a little bit more sort of media friendly over the years, but I can't remember the last thing he's done. Um and, you know, maybe th- this is a classic case of hiding behind the football element to say, right, as, as sort of Matt's saying, you go out there and, and face the awkward questions because we don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And also, perhaps in their defence, they're <laughs> perhaps spending a lot of time as well trying to sort out this mess. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing they want to do is perhaps face awkward questions that they mm-hmm. can't answer and, and be held responsible for those answers when... You know they're they're sort of like sort of trying to put um, 
put this to right as, as best they can. The decisions, Matt, made by Three and Hyundai um, to end their, or suspend, uh, the, uh, suspend their, their, their deals with Chelsea, and yet their logos were still on their shirts on Sunday, Hyundai, the sleeve sponsor, mm. Three on the front. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of money has been paid up Front, front for, yeah, for, for sure. That with, deal. with commercial deals, a lot goes up front. By announcing that they're suspending it, what it, what what mm-hmm. does that actually mean? There's there's a little bit of uh, cake and eat it there. Um, they get they get the sort of PR bump from doing the right thing. Um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the thing is, you're right. The money's most of the money would have gone up front. There's, there'll be detriment clauses in in most commercial deals these days. So it was a pretty sort of straightforward. Um, decision, I think um, this is this is bad for us, bad for our reputation. So we, we we can we can break this, and we will. I think there's always a little bit of okay, how long does it take to unpick this? It's literally in this case, you know, unpick unpick from shirt. Mm. Um, Simon will know more about that than me because I actually haven't spoken to the the club on that particular issue. Like, when are we going to see you wear something else? Um, look, this you know. I can completely understand why anyone doesn't want to be associated with Chelsea right now. Put it that way. I, I think I think it's the case, guys, that 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 Chelsea are kind of well. Can we actually go out and get new shirts as part of the sanction? You know. Yeah. Because they're yeah. going to have to get new shirts. <laughs> there are all kinds of unintended consequences to having to being frozen, and and this I think is just one of them. You know, it seems like a sort of straightforward thing. All oh, right, so we don't want to sponsor you anymore. Okay, can we can we take take it off the shirt, please? Uh, <laughs> hold on a minute. Um, yeah, yes, in time. Uh, we're trying to do all this other stuff as well. Um, you've had your PR hit. Come, you know, you're you're about nineteenth in my list of priorities right now. That's just just my take. I mean, I might be wrong. We talked about sort of muddling through day by day. Where are we at with potential buyers, Matt? Well, it's it's a good question. Um, a hell of a lot happened last week. Um, the sales process was was paused for obvious reason. Complete confusion as to how. How you actually sell a frozen asset? Rain Group on Friday, uh, having kind of emailed everyone, all the interested parties, to say we're going to have to pause things. Wrote to them again and said, "Guys, we're back on." Now they've been speaking to government themselves. Chelsea have been speaking to the government as well. Look, clearly, the only way out of this is to sell the club, to get to genuine handover to somebody else. Everybody knows that the government's completely aware of that. So. It really then just became a case of, like, okay, who's best to do this? Is it Rain Group, who have started the process, who buy and sell football clubs, sports franchises, they, they've done a lot in the States, or do we hand it to somebody else and start the process again? Because maybe we think that Rain Group are conflicted. They were appointed by Abramovich for a start. Do we take it on board? Does the Foreign Office, does the Treasury try and sell a football club? That doesn't sound like a good idea to me. So really, I think common sense prevailed. And they went... Rain Group, crack on. You know, we're going to have a final say here, effectively. You're going to have to come to us with your winner of your auction, which we has been pushed back from, I think it was going to be tomorrow, wasn't it? The 15th, we're doing it on this Monday. It's now gone back to the end of the week, but it's a Friday. When you've got your winner of your process, and the, interest, the interested parties are still there, they might not all bid, but they're all still kicking the tyres and having a look at the books and chatting amongst lenders and whatever. How can we do this? Do we want to do this? How much are we going to bid? When you've got that person, the government will then say, okay, that's fine. Here's your, I think it will be a new license, a bespoke 
sales license to permit the transfer of this frozen asset to somebody else. Who sets the price? Well, I think Rain Group is. I think the auction's going to set the price. It is a live auction. Right. And actually, the fact that it is an auction will help them because, you know, the people that are trying to buy these this club, all the buyers are, are obviously incredibly successful people in business who have got a lot of their success through driving a hard bargain, I'm guessing. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And there's a lot of that going on in the papers as well. There's a little bit of, I think, fishing for investment too. And the other, there's it's sort of almost a two-bit, two-part process in that there's this opportunity to buy a distressed asset, a, a, a big six club uh, discount, but at the same time making the calculation that, well, hold on a minute, they're, they're big six now, but they're big six because a bloke has lavished money and thrown money at yeah. them. What were they before? And that's quite hard to work out. They they, they qualify for the Champions League in, in the year before Abramovich bought them. And they, that was off the back of Matthew Harding, obviously, spending a lot of money on them. But where were they historically in the 90s and 80s? I mean, that's something that every sensible bidder is thinking. And then there's the stadium. The number of people I've spoken to who would be interested in buying a big six Premier League club, particularly one in London, are then saying, hmm, stadium though. How much have we got to pay for that? A billion? Billion and a half? Two? And the final one, where do the Premier League come in in all of this, in this in this uh, new owner process, bearing in mind they're feeling a lot of heat at the moment on their directors and owners test and I think are, you know, are, are looking at it. So whoever wins this auction is then going to have to be investigated with a fine tooth comb, aren't they? Yes, they are. And look, and we've already had some, uh, we've had a chance to ask Richard Masters, the Premier League Chief Executive, about this. And, you know, what's the quickest you can do it? I think he said 10 days is the quickest. That's to do their, their bit of it, the kind of vetting of the owners and directors. They could do it quicker, I think, if they had to, if this was a really sort of, you know, someone, someone maybe that had already bought shares in Premier League clubs before or uh, had was known to them from the from the states it could be done but you're right the process has to be thorough very much so so Simon Matt thank you very much a very strange day yesterday at Stamford Bridge the Athletics George Culkin has written an excellent piece that you can read now that pulls everything together we also gave George a microphone to take in the sounds around the stadium on a day when the game between Chelsea and Newcastle was completely overshadowed by greater geopolitical issues. Hello, this is George Culkin. I'm outside Stamford Bridge, uh, not too long before uh, Chelsea play Newcastle. Uh, I've been here for a few hours wandering around, trying to sort of get to grips with today and what it means and what it doesn't mean. There's a feeling of normal abnormality, I'd call it. It feels like a normal match day in in lots of ways. There's... um, Lots of fans milling around. It's very, very busy. At the same time, it's not quite the same uh, as it always is. On the tube on the way over, there was a, there was a Chelsea Chelsea fan with his son there, and his son said, uh, oh, what's going to happen today, Dad? And the older fella said, we're going to fucking smash him like we always do. So it does feel normal in that sense, but there's small pockets of protests around. There's lots of media doing interviews with Chelsea fans and the Chelsea supporters trust are here too. I bumped into to Liam, our brilliant Chelsea writer. What, what do you make of the atmosphere here today, Liam? Honestly, it doesn't look any different to Chelsea home games that, that I've been to before. You know, there are people just milling around. 
You're not hearing you're not hearing like endless choruses of Roman Abramovich. I've heard it a couple of times. There was one one quite interesting moment as I was coming out of Fulham Broadway station where a guy in front of me with his kid um, got out his phone smiling to sort of take a selfie video of the fans behind him singing you are my Chelsea my only Chelsea and then they immediately switched to Roman Abramovich he put his phone away again um, so that I think that that moment kind of sums up the fact that there's not really a universal feeling here I think a lot of fans are still figuring out what they what they make of what's happened in the last two weeks and I think they will be for a little while I'm fully expecting once I'm in the stadium to hear chants in support of Abramovich we've just got some Newcastle fans going by in spirits I mean that's one of the other interesting bits about today is that you've got you've got old new money meets new new money and you've got a club in Newcastle who are obviously riding the crest of a wave of a team suddenly doing well having spent a load of money uh, in January and with you know with new ownership which kind of poses a lot of the same sorts of questions that Chelsea are going through at the moment yeah in many ways it's depending on which way you look at it the 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 perfect or the worst possible opponent um, given developments at Chelsea for the whole sort of geopolitical narrative around the Premier League as a whole I mean that yeah there's obviously been lots written and talked about this week about the the compare and contrast between Newcastle's owners and 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 Roman Abramovich and I think that will continue to be a theme it might even be a theme between the two sets of fans in the stadium because we know that you know generally once fans get into that environment everything is game for point scoring for for better or worse and it's, i mean when i sort of mentioned that sort of normal abnormality you can get more of a sense of it i think when you get closer to the stadium because there's no programs on sale today uh, the club shop is closed you know they're advertising a sale in the club shop but nobody can can get in the club museum is open but only for people who've pre-booked uh, ticket there for Chelsea versus Brentford with no tickets available written underneath it, which yeah. is you know quite unusual for a for a game to be advertised, but they're not advertised in terms yeah. of ticket and, sales. And, and you still see you still see sort of big hoardings with uh, three Chelsea sponsors who have we know have kind of walked away, but they they haven't gone. They're still there. So it's only really when you sort of stop and stare and really think about it that you sort of notice any kind of meaningful difference. Yeah, and it, that actually kind of highlights as much as anything the the holding pattern, the strange holding pattern that Chelsea are in now because three have, have stepped away but they haven't walked away you know they've suspended their their partnership so have Hyundai who do the training kit um, but they're sort of waiting like everyone else to see what happens next with Chelsea and I think we all expect there to be significant developments in the next week or two in the ownership with, it, with regards to a sale and then of course these brands might reevaluate their positions when the time comes but for now it is definitely part of the sort of surreal aesthetic of this game. So we're approaching kickoff now. Fans pouring in through the Stamford Gate. This is where the away fans coming in. They're the people we can hear, but I don't think that's particularly unusual. Uh, the away fans are always the fans making the noise, um, and still it feels like a pretty normal, normal match day experience to me. Um, the one thing that does feel strange is the number of media outlets and media people I realise I'm one of those so there's an irony in me saying that but approaching Chelsea fans to comment on the situation regarding their club and uh, Russia and Ukraine and Abramovich that feels very peculiar but the rest of it doesn't 
at the moment it really doesn't so anyway we'll see what it's like on the inside standing outside Stamford Bridge the last few people are kind of dribbling out of the stadium now after Chelsea's 1-0 win I don't know what I expected today I think maybe I expected it to feel different and it hasn't really felt different. There have been some, you know, chants from Newcastle fans inside the stadium, as you've heard. But, I mean, that's very much par for the course. The way it feels to me is it's it's business. It's business as unusual. It's not quite the same. But really, football, football rolls on, doesn't it? And um, that's certainly how it felt today. No real kind of great difference outside the stadium, apart from people like me wandering around, <laughs> journalists... Um, and certainly no difference inside, except perhaps that big uh, moment of relief and release for Chelsea when they scored their, their winning goal. But yeah, football rolls on, money rolls on. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, our Liverpool writer James Pearce is with us now. Uh, Liverpool comfortably beating Brighton at the weekend, James. But as you wrote in your piece on that game, the Mo Salah contract standoff is an unwanted distraction. Where are we at with how long he's left on his contract? Has there been an offer to him? And the ball is in whose court at the moment? Yeah, well, where we're at at the minute is that the Mo Salah's contract, which he actually signed back in 2018, um, runs until the summer of 2023. So, you know, we're not we're not far off. You know, the the prospect of one of the best players in world football reaching the the last year of his deal, and obviously that's why I think over the course of this season it's been bubbling away in the background. But I think now you start to think, well, actually, this is now getting quite serious. So I think there's a there's a little bit of a PR game going on at the minute. I think in terms of depending who you listen to, in terms of where the ball is, I think different parties knocking it back into the other one's court. I think Mo Salah, whenever he's been asked about it, he's always said, I want to stay. I love it here. It's down to, you know, the hierarchy at Liverpool to sort it out. And, you know, and very much saying it's down to them. You know, then you had Jurgen Klopp last Friday at Kirby saying that it's Mo's decision. The club's done, done what it can do. And now, you know, he said there's been no rejection, no agreement. You know, we're just waiting to see what happens. Salah's agent then responded to Klopp's comments with seven crying, laughing emojis in a, a kind of a thinly veiled, I think it's fair to say, dig, suggesting that um, that clearly he doesn't see it in quite the same way. What does Salah want? Or maybe, maybe I should I should say, what does Salah's agent want? <laughs> well, in, in terms of absolute specific numbers, all parties have remained pretty tight-lipped on this up to this point. That hasn't changed. I think what, what we do know is that what Salah's agent is determined to do is, in his eyes, is to get him a contract that he's, he views as representative of Salah's status in world football. You know, I think, don't think anyone would argue with the fact that Mo Salah has you know, delivered at such a ridiculously high level for so long that he, you know, he, he has been one of the greatest players on the planet this season, yet 
you know, when you look at the numbers, you know, it, I think he he is in the kind of the top bracket at Liverpool, but it's, you know, it's around that £200,000 a week mark. And, you know, of course, I'm sure Rami Abbas's advisor is looking around and thinking, well, hang on a minute, you know, you've got Jack Grealish going to Man City on 300 grand a week. De Bruyne obviously earns more than that. You've got people like David De Gea and, and Pogba um, at United on considerably more. He's obviously trying to get the absolute best possible deal for, for his client. And we're at a stage at the minute where, you know, it's clearly there's still a, a fairly big gap between what the club are willing to offer and, and what he wants. But what I don't get is where does the Salah camp think he's going to get the the ridiculous money? Because it's not going to be at Manchester United or Manchester City, so you can rule them out, which basically leaves you with one of three clubs, doesn't it? One, one of whom... I question now you know, the majority of how they're managing to sign players in Barcelona. And then the other two are Paris Saint-Germain and Real Madrid. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important element in all this, that I don't think it's, I don't think it's a situation where Salah's hand is strengthened by having an array of options and suitors ready to, to give him what he wants that he feels Liverpool aren't coughing up at the minute. I think, you know, when you look around in terms of, you know, if, if this standoff continues into the summer, then clearly Liverpool are going to have a very big decision to make, which is essentially, you know, if you if you can't fix this, then what do you do? Do you do you cash in, or do you do you almost accept he's going to go for nothing in 2023? I think certainly in in terms of someone being able to buy him, I think in terms of overseas clubs, you're only looking at PSG. I think that that would be the only one that would that would even you know spring out really when you think well if Mbappe is expected goes to Real Madrid would PSG look to bring Salah in but then it's like you know we, we know that PSG would obviously be able to give him exactly what he wants financially but the, can they give him the other things that he has at Liverpool you know he's it's it, I don't think you'd say that PSG would be a step up when you look at where Liverpool are competing at the minute and he's playing for one of the best managers in the world he's absolutely adored by the supporters and of course you know there's a there's a midfielder in Paris at the minute who, who thought the grass might be greener there when he turned down Liverpool's contract offer, Georgino Wijnaldum, a, a year ago and, and was stuck warm in the bench as they got knocked out of the Champions League last week. It strikes me that that Liverpool have all the cards here, to to be honest, and, and also their and also their philosophy that nobody is bigger than the club and that works for them. Yeah, and I think the other because I, I see lots of supporters on social media say to me, you know, it's a it's a joke what the owner's doing, just give him whatever he wants. And I think, well, you know, on the one hand, I can understand that Salah is operating in such an elite bracket. The prospect of losing him is very unpalatable for Liverpool fans. There's no doubt about that. And Liverpool would be weaker as a result. But I think you have to balance that against the fact that, you know, no one is bigger than the club and the fact that, you know, they have this wage structure that they pride themselves on where, you know, they and they're not going to just rip that up and, and start again. It served them incredibly well up to this point. And then you look at, you know, you look at someone like Luis Diaz with the impact he's had when he's come in since the end of January. And, you know, Klopp said himself, you know, they they have to keep evolving. They have to keep building for the future. And you, you certainly wouldn't look at this Liverpool team and and describe it as a, as a one-man team. No, and that and that's my final point, really. I mean, let, let's say they were to give Salah, I'll pluck a, a figure out there. Let's say they were to give him 350 grand a week, 400 grand a week. Virgil van Dijk could then equally go to them. Well, hang on a minute. You know, I changed. I changed this club fortunes around when I when I joined. I want four hundred grand a week. Allison could probably go. Well, 
hang on a minute, I changed this club around by bringing yeah. stability and goal. I want 400 grand a week. You could even argue that Alexander-Arnold might want 400. I mean, do you, or if not 400 grand a week, at least an upgrade on what they've got to to reflect their importance as well. If all of a sudden the most important player has gone from 200 to 400. Yeah, that's why there is no easy solution to this. Because you're right, because you can say, well, look at Salah's numbers. You know, he's, you know, he's almost in a class of his own, but it's like, well, hang on a minute. Virgil van Dijk is the best centre-half in world football. That's that's where he's operating at the minute. You'd say Alisson belongs in the conversation in terms of the best goalkeeper. Is there a better fullback around than Alexander-Arnold? So, yeah, you, you give Salah what he wants and, you know, there'll be a there'll probably be a queue outside, well, Julian Ward's office shortly wanting, wanting discussions about their client situations. I still think at the minute, between now and the end of the season, there's still a decent window there that I, I hope, I just think when you take a step back and you look at it, Salah has been unbelievable for Liverpool, but Liverpool has been unbelievable for Salah as well. And and it's they they've they've been great for each other. Certainly the relationship with Klopp, you know, Klopp's taken him to the next level. Does he really want to walk away from that? I struggle to believe that. And that's why I still cling to the hope that a compromise can be reached. I don't think either Liverpool or Salah really benefit if if there is a parting of the ways, whether that comes this summer or in the summer of 2023. James, we're going to move on on the pod to talk about Everton. Do you want do you want to stay for that or, <laughs> uh, or not? It's it's um yeah, I think it's fair to say contrasting <laughs> moods amongst uh, my Liverpool and Everton supporting friends at the minute. Thanks, Cheers, chappers. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. So let's move on to Everton. Now they slipped further into danger at the weekend with a fourth successive Premier League defeat. Paddy Boylan covers the club for the Athletic and joins us now. You sort of have a you have a pained expression on your face. I feel like I ought to a bit like when you go to the dentist. I ought to say I'll try I'll try to make sure that this doesn't hurt too much over the next ten minutes. However, the start we had last night. They've got nine points out of the last 60 available. I mean, good grief. Yeah, I mean, that, that's half a season, more than half a season, where they've only taken nine points. So, I mean, extrapolate that over a full campaign and you're looking at 18 points total. So it's more or less been a complete disintegration, if you can call it that, from the early days under Rafael Benitez. I mean, that, that was only six months ago and they started pretty well 
I remember coming away from a 1-1 draw against Manchester United at Old Trafford thinking that he'd really managed to get a tune out of this squad. And then you realise that United made everybody look good around that period. <laughs> and then it quickly became apparent that, yes, everybody <laughs> does look good against Manchester United. So it was utterly meaningless. The extent of the drop-off since then has obviously been stark. You, you talk about that statistic there. I think that paints the picture perfectly. I was looking back over the final stages of the game on Sunday and the response from the crowd. And instead of booze or jeers or anything at full time, what really struck me was the silence. It was, it was like a morgue. It was a deathly silence. And almost this feeling, I think, from the supporters that confidence has ebbed away in the team, in their ability to fight and to, to battle against what's, what's coming their way. Um, just despondency more than anything. And you could see that reflected in the players as well. I mean, half of them slumped to the turf and had to be pulled up by Joe Edwards and, and Frank Lampard's backroom staff. So I, I think that paints the picture there of where Everton are as a club. That's the thing that really struck me yesterday was just how flat everything was. It's very easy to overreact to every single result in a relegation battle for every club. So immediately, oh, Watford have got hope because they've won at Southampton. Oh, God, Leeds and an injury time winner. But out of all the clubs that are fighting, maybe with the exception of Norwich, there appears either a fight on the field, a glimmer of hope on the field. I mean, even Burnley haven't been playing that badly. They missed a lot of chance at Brentford. Or a passion and a fight off the field. I mean, Ellen Road was rocking yesterday. Partly for the for the love, I think, of the club, and even though they sat Bielsa, you know what the owners are trying to do, and Evertonians don't have that towards their ownership, do they? Because of everything that's gone on, and it's as you say, it's a it's a it's a resignation, or or as I say, flat. I can't quite put my finger on it. The problem with asking the supporters to go to the well time after time, as as they've done this season, is that eventually there's going to there's going to be a stumbling block. There's going to be a, a time when the atmosphere is great, but things go against Everton and then everything just drops off. I think there's there's almost like a collective fatigue that's set in, certainly amongst the supporters, being asked against Brentford and against Leeds and against Manchester City, where the atmosphere was fantastic at Goodison, to almost spark something in these very highly paid players. There's, there's only so often I think you can do that, only so often that passion can get you through. Um, and as we know, that's kind of not enough in, in this league. So I, I actually thought that it, was, it was chalk and cheese. First half atmosphere, really good. Everton, to, to my money at least, shaded it in terms of chances. Yeah, yeah. Not possession, but, but Richarlison's chance was the big chance of yeah. the first half. But it's what happens in the face of adversity when things are going wrong and how the players respond to that and then how the fans view what the players yeah. are doing and respond to that as well. That kind of strikes home really clearly at, at, at this moment in time. So it's kind of hard to see where they go from here, to be honest. You mentioned the record over the past 20 games. It would be far too simple to say this is purely Lampard's fault. No. This is purely the player's fault. I would argue actually that it's it's just about everybody's fault at the club. There's failure across the board, even going down into the academy setup here. Um, this is what happens when a club collectively and cumulatively gets it wrong across all areas. Has Lampard done anything differently to Benitez? I think in terms of style, it's very different. Uh, certainly a lot more, more a lot more modern in approach in terms of high press, 
all the terminology you would expect from a manager that wants to adhere to more modern philosophies. So they're pressing from the front more. I think what that's done in turn is it, it's created much more space in behind for opposition sides to exploit. So I couldn't believe when I got to Tottenham on Monday night and Everton pressed to that extent and that high and left Son, Harry Kane, Reggie on with, with that amount of space to run into it. it. It was kind of naivety in the in the extreme, as far as I'm concerned. Benitez would not have done that, but I think there was just utter misery under Benitez. It was like defensive football, but with loads of flaws, loads of foibles. Lampard's been much more positive. He's looked to, in, to, to inject kind of newfound confidence in the players. I think in the early stages, that really permeated through to us. We could say, see that the players were enjoying it more, wanted to, to have that bit more responsibility on the pitch. But it has to be backed up by results and it has to be backed up by performances. And, and so far, I mean, it's, it's four defeats in five now. They're, they're only above the relegation zone on, on goal difference. So it, it, it's a time for action, not words. Their running is absolutely horrific. It is. They, they play Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool away from home, Leicester twice. Uh, so it's not an easy running by any stretch. I'd, I'd, I'd argue that it's tougher than than anybody else that they're competing against. And I think this is why there's such fear and panic at the moment amongst Everton supporters and around the club in general. This feels like the window where they have to pick up points. So, I mean, they've they've dropped, dropped points against Southampton. They've been to Newcastle and lost. Thursday feels like the biggest game. I think, like you said earlier, sometimes we are prone to hyperbole here and um, sometimes we let results, one-off results get the better of us. But I, I do think it is right to say that Thursday is about, about as an important game as Everton have had in a long time, maybe in more than a decade, purely because what it means in terms of pulling clear of sides around them, creating a bit of breathing space, overhauling the the kind of the negative atmosphere that's, that's set in. If Everton were to beat Newcastle, and I think that's a tough prospect right now. They need goodness and rocking for that, don't they? They do. And that would that would put them three points ahead of the relegation zone, four ahead of Burnley in 19th, having played the same number of games as Burnley. They pull further clear of Watford, uh, despite having played two games fewer than them. So there is a way out of this for Everton, but the, the wiggle room is really narrow. It's really small. And because of the fixtures to come, it's a case of kind of when, if at all, kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of onus on, on Thursday and, and, and the games to come. Um, and if and if they don't spark something soon, then they are basically running out of time. You've written a, a, a great article on Kevin Thelwell, who is the new director of football at Everton, and pointed out that, <laughs> boy, does he have a lot of work to do. Why did they go for him? As we believe it, they did look quite extensively at the market to see what was out there. I think the first thing that really struck was that, there is really a dearth of top quality options out there, people with track records. I mean, the former director of football, Marcel Brands, came in with a glowing CV, a glowing reputation, but never really got the job done. I would argue there was an element of interference there, which made it hard for him. But uh, needless to say, he he wasn't a success and, and decided to move on, um, whatever the reasons. So they looked at a few. They looked at Steve Hitchin, who's obviously recently left Tottenham, um, I think there were conversations with, with with people about Paul Mitchell and a few others. Um, Paul Mitchell being former Tottenham and, and Southampton, now at now at Monaco. But Thelwell was interviewed, and I think he appealed in a way that Hitchin in particular didn't, purely for his CV. 
And Thelwell had started an academy recruitment with Wolves and an academy, he became the academy director there. So he's experienced working with young players. As we understand it, that was one of the things that made him stand out. But then he did the job, a very similar job at, at Wolves, as a sporting director, went over to the US and, 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 and did it well, depending on who you listen to. But may, may, most people suggest he did it well with uh, New York Red Bulls. So there was kind of a proven track record there and there was an acceptance to think that they can't just continue to throw money at this problem. That's what they've done in the past. Simply put, they don't have the money to do that now. They're, they're bang up against it in terms of FFP. The only su- sustainable way out is to buy smartly, to invest in the academy and find players like Anthony Gordon that eventually, Jared Branthwaite, that eventually you can then either sell on or that can become key parts of you, the squad. So I just think Thelwell's background was more in that sphere and that's what ultimately got him the job. Very highly regarded. Basically everybody in football thinks he's a lovely guy and but also knows that he's got his work cut out here because there's a, there's a million and one things wrong with Everton and not much time to fix them. And on that depressing note, we'll leave that there. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, Patrick. Cheers, Gaffers. <laughs> And you can read Paddy's article on uh, Kevin Thelwell and plenty more on The Athletic, and you can subscribe to it for just £1 a month for the first six months. Go to theathletic.com slash footballpod. And I'm back on Thursday with Matt for the Business of Sport podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.